hear that music, you know what's going on. It's time for Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Got a great show on tap for you once again. Ira, you are not in studio, and... You've been really all over the place, um, taking in probably the best events uh, of the year, at least in my opinion. Ira, where are you now, and where have you been? Well, I've been at three World Series games in Washington, D.C., uh, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then today, tonight, I'll be at the Dolphins-Steeler game, Monday Night Football. Um, a very exciting game for the Steelers. It was a must-win game. And, and, and if you talk to a lot of Dolphin fans, I don't know if they want to win this game. Like if they're, if Now they're trading the running back, Kenyon Drake. Uh, they've traded like Fitzpatrick. Uh, they don't seem to be, if you're talking to most Dolphin fans, they're like, let's just keep losing. Don't win the game. <laughs> but we'll see. But it's an important win, and you never know with the Steelers. The Steelers have, in the past, lost the games. They were the, after the Browns had lost 32 games in a row, the Steelers, they tied with the Steelers. The Steelers have had sometimes the worst losses uh, to heavy underdogs. And while the Steelers have had over 500 records year after year, uh, every now and then they suffer. They just they don't get up for these games. So if the Steelers aren't ready to play, Dolphins are professionals. The Steelers could lose this game. So it's a huge game. If the Steelers have any chance for the playoffs, they have to win this game. Ira, it was a very crazy week. And, and you know, here I was four days ago. Like, wow, the Nationals are going to win the World Series. Congratulations. Things have completely changed. I can't wait to talk about all that. Plus, talk about a great day of NFL action. But uh, we do have a great interview coming up. It's with Mark Leibovich. Uh, he's a journalist and author. Tell us a little bit about Mark. Uh, Mark wrote a book called uh, The Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. It came out last year. He covered the NFL for a year. He's a political writer, one of the top political writers in New York Times, the best-selling author of the best-selling book, This Town. And so he put his political hat on and used it and tried to analyze the NFL. And he writes in a very funny style, an interesting style. It's a great book. Anybody wants to, to learn about the NFL and what's going on with Roger Goodell, the owners, Kraft, Brady, it's the perfect book. And he covers all the topics. And, and Ira, you know, it's funny. We'll, we'll hear more about this in the interview. Um, we did pre-tape this earlier so that Ira could be at the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers game tonight. But getting an interview and getting up close and personal with Roger Goodell is something, Ira, that not many people, not many journalists get to do. And we're going to get an inside look at that. Right. I mean, he and he not only met with Goodell, but had sit downs with Brady, had sit downs with Kraft and Jerry Jones. It's a it's a great book, and and I think someone, I think that a lot of these um, owners and players and with Brady and, and Goodell, they looked at him as a political reporter, but they were willing to talk to and maybe not talk to the people who cover sports for a living. So it was, he was able to get in, insight and uh, that a lot of people don't get. Ira, um, before we get into all this, we got a really quick Tiger Woods. Um, tied Sam Snead yesterday for 82 uh, victories, which is just absolutely ridiculous um, that, that he's at that level and now, you know, tied for the, the most ever. I got to tell you, though, I didn't know much about the Zozo Championship going into this, and I still don't know much after. I do know that they have two greens on, on holes at some courses like that, but uh, this is a huge win for Tiger Woods. It's a huge win. And it's a major win for a lot of reasons. One is that it's his 82nd. There's there's two numbers in golf: 82, which is Sam Snead's record for most PJ wins, and 18, Jack Nicklaus's. Um, Tiger has always mentioned this 82 win. This is something that's been on his mind for 15, 20 years. He's he's mentioned this, and it's tremendous that he got his 82nd win. I think it was a shock. 
to anyone. He's playing over in Japan. It, it, he just had knee surgery a, a, a few months ago. Uh, he was had the, the weather was horrendous. It was raining. It was cold. So you expect, okay, he's not going to play well. It's raining and cold. And it, it was one day it was, it was wiped out. So he had to play 29 holes in one day. And one day it was so bad they couldn't even have fans on the course. They just out there playing with nobody out of the court except the players and their caddies. And still amidst all of that, and interesting, well, what's, who's in this field? This is the first time they had golf in Japan uh, as a PGA event. Well, Roy McIlroy was there. Gary Woodland was there. Hideki Matsuyano was, was from there and familiar with the course. And Tiger ends up shooting at 18 under and winning the tournament over Matsuyano. It was a tremendous win. And what does this mean going forward for Tiger? It's like people are going to wait till January, February to see where Tiger is and how he recover from his knee surgery. Because we saw him at the end of last year. He looked tired. He looked stiff. But he looks great. He played great, and the most, and this now sets up great. Now he was a thirty to one favorite. This, trust me, going to the Masters, as long as he stays healthy, he's going to be a heavy favorite to win the Masters. But what I like, and I saw some of this tournament, is that he was aggressive. People say, "Well, it's shot an eighteen under, it's easy course." But that's what Tiger for Tiger. He used he's won, used to win a lot of these tournaments like that, where he would just go and shoot these high scores and just sit on the lead and then wait for people to come back to him. But I like the fact that in the last couple of years he's been more conservative and more like waiting, and he's been playing tougher courses so his score you know he's been waiting with 500 and 600 and he's and he's just waiting for other people to make mistakes sort of like what happened at the masters but this shows that tiger was going for birdies shooting birdie after birdie after birdie going for pins and i think that's going to give him confidence going into the tournaments next year including the masters and the us open and the pga that he can go after and try to get these birdies and get this lead so i think this was a great win for tiger to tie 82 nobody it was out of Blue. I mean, it's a thirty to one shot to win. This what Tiger's the thirty one. That's amazing. And then, but setting up for next year, this is guy. He said even a few weeks ago he wasn't even walking courses. He was just riding in a cart. And now to think that his knee feels great, his back feels great. I, I'm real excited for what this could mean for Tiger next year. You know, I read that it, it, you can't downplay this field either. Like you said, in addition to the guys you named, Justin Thomas, Jason Day. This is among the best golfers in the world, and he looked awesome throughout the entire thing. I did read this, and you may know more about this than me, but Sam Snead, some of his wins apparently were like 15-person fields. Um, he, he won an LPGA event, counted. So Tiger, he's, you know, some people are saying he's already well above and beyond what Sam Snead accomplished. Well, Jack had 173, so people mentioned that. But it's still, uh, look, there's a picture of Tiger when he was six years old with Sam Steen. He was in, I think, his 50s or 60s, which is a great picture. Um, but he was, but Tiger has been, uh, he has been uh, reverent, I mean, he is deferential to Sneed, to Nicholas, to all the people who came before him in golf. He's always been like that. And I, he's been mentioning this record. And I think whenever you hear records like this that are broken, it's like the name comes up. I mean, when, when McGuire and Sosa were going after Roger Maris's record, it was like, now we know about the record. We know Maris's record. So the point is that people hadn't heard about Sam Snead and what a great golfer he was. I don't want to minimize his accomplishments, but Tiger really set this up as something that he wanted to accomplish. And uh, this was major. But I think more importantly, if we're trying to get to the 18 and we're trying, he's at 15, trying to get those extra three majors and trying to have uh, Tiger, of course, is not going to be the Tiger of old. But the fact is, is it looks like he can be competitive and win these tournaments. And the way he won this was good and the way the field he beat and under the conditions with the rain, because they say, oh, if it's rainy and cold, he doesn't have a chance to win. Everyone can say the only tournament he has a chance to win is the Masters.
Now it looks like Tiger could be competitive all throughout the year. And if his knee isn't hurting, he can play more tournaments and, uh, and, and have more wins. Maybe he has like five wins, wins one or two majors, and has a tremendous year and back is to number one in the world. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Mark Leibovich, uh, excellent journalist and author, is going to join us in just about 25 minutes or so here on Iron Sports. All right, Ira, World Series, let's get into it. You've been at the past three games and good choices because this has been one of the most exciting World Series that I've seen in a long time, mostly because I thought it was over. After two games, not the case. Let's go back to game one. This was the matchup everyone wanted to see. Max Scherzer versus Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole got his first loss since May in this one. Well, I think the key to this game, you had Scherzer versus Cole, and I think the key to the game was after Springer walked in Otobi single day and Guerrero doubled. In the first inning, uh, they went up 2 nothing. But then Ryan Zimmerman came and had that home run off Cole. And we talked about Ryan Zimmerman before. From 2005, he was the first draft choice of the Nationals. But suddenly Cole, who hadn't lost since May 11th, and then the Nationals look like, oh, we can hit against him. We can get runs. We can score. And then Juan Soto comes up later and hits a home run and makes it 2-2. Uh, I think that was key. And the fact that Scherzer was able to stay in through five innings and, and, and hang in there at 2-2, and, uh, and that was the key thing. And then, and then um, it was just, I think that was the key thing. It, it, but the fact is that they were able to take that 5-2 five, that five lead and then hold on to, I mean, when Soto got the double to make it 5-2, but then hold on to the, you know, 5-3, five, 5-4. Five, Springer had another home run, uh, but it was, it was I, what really cost him the game was in the eighth inning when Springer doubled, and he's on, but it, was, it could have been a triple. He just well, he thought he was going to hit a home run with two men on, and he just stayed, he stopped, and this is what we talked about Rafael Asuna for doing, which is slowing down. Springer, who has been the MVP of the World Series, has done home run after home runs, but he was looking at his home run instead of running. If he would have made it to third base, Altuve, the next uh, batter, would have fly, had a fly out. That would have advanced him and the score would have been tied 5-5 and they would have gone to extra innings and I love the chances of the Astros in extra innings. So that was a bad loss, a bad play by Springer. I don't think he's been criticized in the national media as much for that mistake, but that really cost him that game by him not running out and getting to third base on, on his double, which was a double but could have been a, 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 a triple. But you got to give the, Astro, the Nationals credit. Their bullpen, Rainey, Hudson, and Doolittle, they held on that. And, and, and to beat Cole, that was tremendous. But I think the Zimmerman home run and the Springer mistake were the two keys of that game. Well, you know, how fitting and cool is it that their first-ever draft pick hits their first ever World Series home run, Ryan Zimmerman, uh, like you said earlier. But you're absolutely right. This game, to me, was more of a statement game in a sense of saying, hey, we're going to hit your best pitchers. The Yankees did a decent job of getting guys on base, couldn't score runs. And then after this game, and then going into uh, game two, when they really got the best of Verlander, now that should have been, that flight going back to Washington, D.C., must have been so enthused. Like, we can hit these guys. We're as good a team as any team you've seen all season. We're ready to go. And that's how it probably was uh, after game two. Well, and that's what you're going to have to look at, because the same starters, uh, uh, Strasburg is going to go against Verlander tomorrow night. And what you saw in Game 2, and Verlander, who has won 21 wins this year, 300 Ks, multiple Cy Youngs, tremendous, but he's 0 for 5 in the World Series. 
with over a five ERA. So he really hasn't pitched well. He definitely has not pitched like well in the World Series, but he's pitched well in the postseason, just not the World Series. He was with the Tigers and he was with the Astros. Uh, but the key to Verlander, what the problem has been is that first inning. If he can get out of that first inning, he's fine. But uh, you saw what happened in the Yankee series where he had trouble in the first inning. Again, the Nats got it. This is the one game, the only game they were able to get a 2-0 lead on Rendon, hit a double, and suddenly they're down, you know, they're up 2-0. Now the Astros came back and tied it 2-2 with Bregman with a home run. But in the seventh, it was just a mess. I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, I would not read in the final score. I mean, people were saying, oh, my gosh, they're so much better. But I think once the game blew open and there were, there were a lot of errors, yeah. they, they just made mistakes. The Astros were a mess there in the seventh inning. And, uh, and that was, that's where they blew it, you know, just between. And it was really not a lot of home runs at the seventh. It was singles and, and throwing errors. And that's what took that to lead. So the 12-3 final score I don't think is indicative in terms of what, how close this game was beginning. But the fact is, yeah, when they came back, to, you know, I was at Washington. I was there uh, for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I watched the game on Wednesday night, and there, they, I mean, the town thought this is it. I mean, we just beat Cole. We just beat Verlander. Like we're set for this. I mean, this the town was going crazy, and the ticket prices twelve hundred dollars a ticket. Everything would be excitement, amazing. Okay, Aaron. So let's talk about that now. Um, you're in Washington D.C. You're getting ready to go to Nationals Park. Did you know you were going to go to all three games, or you know at least two, if that if that's what it lasted? Had was that in your plans? I already, I, yeah, I had tickets for all three. <laughs> I knew I had tickets for. Of all. course, you did. Um, so, Ira, one of the things that I'm reading about is that people are saying how awesome the Nationals fans are. That they're super accommodating to the Astros fans. It's like everyone's out there to have fun. There's no, you know, no drunken debauchery or something like you'd see in some cities that this has like been such a family-friendly and awesome uh, event to take in. 100% agree. I mean, there are tons of Astro fans there. The Nationals were nice to everyone. I, I mean, it, 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 was, it was great. I didn't see any... Uh, anything bad. I mean, really, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a tremendous atmosphere. Everyone is wearing national gear. I mean, there are people who probably hate baseball that had national hats on. Everyone around town is watching. You know, for a town that is so politically divided between Republicans and Democrats and all the political issues and all the issues, it's like everyone can be a national fan. Like, there's no parties. It's all, so it's great. I think it's something that the town embraces. The fact that they can be excited about something that isn't Republican, Democrat, and Trump and anti-Trump, it's something that they love. And so the town just rallies around this team everybody likes it i mean i was it's it's it, and then they start this whole baby shark thing where para is started this whole baby, it is one of the greatest uh walk-up songs ever where they play the baby shark song in the town everyone i mean everyone in the stands is doing the baby shark people are dressing like sharks i mean para is not a starter on the team and still this he is now the craze of the baby shark and I just think it's great. I mean, I just, the lines at the stores, but the fact that the stadium is located where they put it and they have opened up all these bars and restaurants around it and they're just packed full of people, uh, it makes it more exciting. We got down there hours before the game and, and just, it just was just, it was just exciting to be down there. And unlike when I went to Dodger Stadium, when you go to Dodger Stadium, there's the stadium and there's nothing else. There's parking lots. But here at Nationals Park, there was, there might be 30, 40 bars. 40 restaurants, everybody walking around, milling around. It was a tremendous atmosphere, very much like the old Steeler atmosphere before Steeler games. That's how excited it was, and everybody was gearing up for the game. I, I totally am regretting not being there because it does sound like a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You got to do it three times. <laughs> Ira, what did you wear, by the way? Were you wearing uh, Pirates gear? 
No, I wore Nats gear. I, I my, my girlfriend was a big Nats fan, and she wanted me to wear Nats. So I, I support <laughs> the team, and they. So I, I wore my my Nats, uh, my hat and shirt. Uh, I'm sure. Okay, so let's talk about Game Three because this was. You don't want to say must win. Every game's a must win in the World Series, but this is the definition of it. I thought Zach Greinke was going to have some trouble here as he had going into it, but he looked like a good pitcher. He allowed seven hits and three walks in four and two thirds inning, but he only gave up one run. And the problem for and the problem for the Nationals is they could just not hit with runners in scoring position. I mean, it was it was terrible between Rendon and Soto. Now Soto had turned twenty one. People were like, "Oh, he turned twenty one. This is great." And Soto came back as the big star with the home run and the double and drawing all the runs. But he made a key error in the game. He also did not, the team him run on between them, but they were one for nine. And uh, I mean, it was it was a complete. Uh, disaster. I mean, the Astros at this game, they jump out to the lead, one nothing, and then, and then on the air that Soto had, they went up to a 2 nothing lead. I mean, every single game but one, the Astros have gone up to this 2 nothing lead, and it's made it easier on, on, on Greinke, because he had, he was pitching with a lead, and I was thinking, looking for a bigger game from Annabelle Sanchez. Uh, we, he had pl- pitched well the previous series, he had pitched well when he pitched for the Tigers, but he just was not sharp at all. And, uh, you know, that was, it was a, that was a, it was a, it was a situation where they just got out, you know, the same game, 4-1, they're down, and they just couldn't, when Cisneros hit a home run to make it 4-1, and they just, the uh, Nationals could not get, they just kept leaving men on base and not scoring runs. Um, let's go on. This was such a tale of two cities, really, because it just completely, completely not what I was expecting, especially as far as performance goes, with now in game four. Four, it looked just as bad again, where it just seemed like the Nationals just couldn't get anything going. But the Nationals in game four, it, it looked like we're going into the game. That was their game. I mean, they had Corbin going. They are paying Corbin $150 million. The Astros don't have a four-starter. They have Verlander, Cole, and Granke. They don't have a four-starter. So it was called the bullpen game. So they have this guy, Urquidy, who came in the game. He's a rookie. He's only thrown 41 innings in regular season. He was pitching in Class AAA this year. On August 7th at El Paso, he gave up 11 runs on 14 hits in a AAA game. He's only pitched 41 innings. He ended up pitching five innings, two hits in a World Series game. 30 of his first 38 pitches were strikes. Uh, and Corbin was a, not a disaster, but did not pitch well. I mean, it was a situation where uh, they were they, the Astros jumped up again, two nothing on hits by Bregman and Gurriel, and then top of fourth, Chineros came again, another home run to make it four nothing. And that was just it was just it was a disaster. And then they could not come back. I mean, and then by the set, top of the seventh, Bregman hit a grand slam to make it eight uh, one. And I think that was one of the other key things that all these games. It seemed like the Astros at the end of the game would get that extra run. In this case, an extra four runs. But they never. None of these games and the games in Washington, the Nationals never were in the eighth or ninth inning like with a chance to win the game. They seemed to be out of it by then. It was only because the I mean, the Astros were able to add those insurance runs at the end of the game. And, and they. Oh, they, they suddenly hit well. Altuve was two for five. Brantley, three for five. Bregman, three for five. And even this Mark Kissick, who is their defensive uh, person, had two hits. Um, but I just I mean, Corbin gave up four runs in six innings, and then their bullpen fell apart. And that was it. Was, but this was a game that you expected. This was the game the Nationals ought to win because they had Corbin on the mound. I, I thought so too. And then, <clears throat> you know, talk about momentum shifting. And this is why I said like a tale of two cities. They scored 17 runs in two games in Houston. Now they're after game five scored three runs <laughs> at home. It, it's crazy. But game five watching this one, Ira, that's when I started to get scared now. Like, uh oh, <laughs> this is not looking good for the Nationals. 
Well, you, had, you were going against Garrett Cole. They had confidence they had beat Cole already. So now the whole mantra of Cole is unhittable, he's unbeatable, he's the greatest pitcher, he hasn't lost since May. Suddenly they were able to, to they, they had the confidence. They had Scherzer, who is this veteran. But I was nervous. You were asking me what I thought before the game. I said, Scherzer's old. He's one of the oldest pitchers to pitch in the World Series. I, I, I was nervous whether he's, just, he's been pitching not only the regular season, but then the, 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 uh, the first round of the playoffs and the, the, the first round and the second round games. It seemed like, you know, he could wear down, and he did. I mean, he supposedly, two days before, had neck and shoulder tightness. They get treatment on him, and then he woke up the day uh, yesterday and couldn't even raise his arm. And they had to bring James Ross in the game. So suddenly now, from being where you felt like you had a good chance to win the game as a Nats fan, you're very nervous because you have James Ross on the mound who had started nine games for the year, had a 5.62 ERA, was not really viewed as, as, as that great a pitcher. And I, I think Ross pitched well. Uh, but certainly Cole came back. He just gave up two hits and a walk through six innings. It was the Cole that we've seen all year long. And uh, Alvarez, the rookie, the star rookie for the Astros, hit a home run to go up 2-0. And then Correa hit another two-run home in the fourth and he go up 4-0. And by then it was uh, it was uh, it was it was over. I mean, the end of the game, you know, they they gave up some more runs, but. That was it. Was again that they all that they only managed to so Juan Soto home run late in the game, but to go out and winning seven one. But it was like again they just could not. Their hitters Rendon Soto, uh, their lineup there they just fell apart. They're not hitting with runners in scoring position. If you look, they're swinging at first pitches. Uh, it's just not. It's it's uh, it was a two three bad losses at home. You expect they at worst case scenario they would get one, and they ended up losing all three. It was crazy. So what is left here, Ira? Got potentially two games. It might just be one, though. We're heading back to Houston. What's the forecast? You're going to make it out there at all? And what do you think is going to happen in this series? No, I'm not going to make it out, but I'm excited to watch it. But you have Strasburg versus Verlander. And again, the Nats are still excited about this because you have a guy who's been 4-0 with a 193 ERA in the postseason against Verlander, who's 1-3 with a 4.15 ERA. And you feel comfortable about this game. And Strasburg has already won in Houston, and, uh, and he's pitching great. And you're like, okay, we're going to get that. And then we're going to go to Game 7. And we'll figure out something. Whether Scherzer is able to pitch in Game 7, I find that they gave him a cortisone shot, so maybe he comes back for Game 7, and it's all hands on deck. I would expect uh, that Cole will even pitch on two days rest. I mean, in, two, in 2014, Bumgarner came after pitching Games 1 and 5. He came in in Game 7 and had five innings of relief, 50 pitches, and, uh, and gave up no runs uh, to get the save in that game. Uh, and I, I, I would expect to see Cole, if it ended up going to Game 7, that Cole at least would pitch in relief in that game. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Mark Leibovich joins us in about 10 minutes. Excellent journalist and author. You're not going to want to miss this interview. Ira, I, I think that they're going to get one more win. I think that this series goes seven. Let's I hope it does because it's been great baseball and I want to see more. Um, all right, Ira, let's switch to college football. I want to talk quickly about Auburn and LSU because that was the game of the week. But have you heard this? LSU today signed the coldest to ever do it Crawford. Big prospect from Louisiana. That's his real name, the coldest to ever do it, and he's officially going to be a player for LSU. Did you read about this? Well, I saw that, and and I'll tell you what. LSU, um, this game, first of all, Auburn – Tried hard, and I I, 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 wanna, I hate to use the term try hard, but they play tough. I mean, LSU had a try. I was trying to blow this game out. They got down to the two yard line twice in the second in the second half, 
and Auburn stopped him. One with interception, one a turnover downs. Auburn was leading the game 10-7 in the first half and actually took a 13-10 lead in the second half. Uh, but LSU is just, they just wear these teams down. You saw in the Notre Dame game, this was similar to what happened in Notre Dame, where they just, and even Florida to some extent, where LSU is just so good and they just wear these teams down in the second half. Um, I mean, they dominated statistically, 30 to 16 first downs, 508 yards to 287 yards, and Burroughs played not a great game, but a good enough game with 300 yards and a, and a touchdown. But uh, it was it was one of those games where it's still up for grabs in the third quarter. But but LSU just is just dominant, and Auburn Auburn could not Auburn needed to score touchdowns instead of hitting those field goals. And at the end, LSU could just score those touchdowns. I mean, there's a point where in the second half, where Auburn went six straight series with punts. They couldn't even advance it with first down. So it was a win that LSU needed to have. Auburn played well, but now LSU, with that win, moved up to number one in the country. Um, speaking about moving, I have a feeling we're going to see Oklahoma move just a little bit here uh, after losing to Kansas State. Well, this is a game they were undefeated in the Big 12, and they were one of the favorites to go to the playoff. And this was a near elimination game for Oklahoma because they're up 17-7. And this is one of the things that happens to these teams. You start to play sloppy. You saw Wisconsin do that against LA. You're up 17-7. You start to do flea flickers and crazy passes. And suddenly, their defense, everybody talks about how this team's different. Oklahoma's a defense this year. They don't have the defense they had the last few years. Well, their defense was terrible. They ended up giving up, letting uh, K-State score 24 straight points. The lead was, the K-State led 48-23. When the finally Oklahoma woke up, and came back, and then they had a chance. They actually kicked an onside kick. If they would have got it, they would have the ball back with a minute to go and maybe tie the game. But it was ruled that Oklahoma received it. They did it under review, and they turned it back. But a terrible game. I mean, Jalen Hurts played fantastic. I mean, he had 400 yards passing and, and 100 yards rushing. But the defense, it was like every time K-State had the ball, they just ran and scored. And uh, it was a bad, that's a bad loss. I mean, they were favored by 20 going into the game. You're leading 17-7 in the first quarter, and you give up 24 straight points. Uh, not, you know, as I said, people thought this Oklahoma team was going to be a little different. And, and they're going to, they still have a chance. So we'll go through when we're done. We're going through over the games. But terrible, terrible loss. And we said every week there's going to be an upset. And every week there's going to be a great game. And so we had the great game, the LSU-Auburn game, and then the upset with the K-State-Oklahoma game. You know, a lot of people were a little bit worried about this next matchup, though, and it was Wisconsin versus Ohio State. People thinking, you know, Wisconsin's another good team. They're ranked. This might be an upset game for Ohio State. Not the case at all. Well, now Ohio State's for real. They killed them 38-7. Wisconsin did nothing on offense, nine first downs. Uh, Chase Young for Ohio State could be the first pick in the NFL draft. He had four sacks, looked dominating, looked like the Dominic Sue out there. People are talking about him for the Heisman. And J.K. Dobbins for Ohio State, running the ball, 20 carries, 163 yards. Um, but I liked about what Ohio State, with rain, in rainstorm, I had friends there, it was terrible weather, uh, no turnovers. Ryan Day. See, the thing that's this Ohio State's different than Urban Meyer is that there was a lot of noise going around the program with Urban Meyer. So that you had those upsets like the Purdue upset. There's no noise going on with this Ohio State program. I mean, this is a button down program. There's no mistakes. They're, they beat FAU by 24, Cincinnati by 42, Indiana by 41. They're winning games, Michigan State by 24, Northwestern by 39, Wisconsin by 31. I mean, they're killing these teams. The games aren't even close. They're not making mistakes. They're not putting themselves in a bad position. I, I, I really like the job Ryan Day is doing on this with this team. And again, this team, this is an Ohio State team that looks like, yeah, it could be playing for the national championship game and winning the national championship this year. You know, Ira, there's already some people saying, even if you need a quarterback, 
If you're the number one, one overall pick in the NFL draft, you take Chase Young. Like, he's that good. Doesn't matter what your team needs, you are taking this guy. And after Nick Bosa just, you know, devastated uh, the, the Panthers' offensive line yesterday, making more of a case for these Ohio State uh, defensive linemen. Um, Ira, Penn State, uh, granted they weren't home, they were at Michigan State, but I'm, I'm w- assuming some people in the crowd in the Penn State side are like, where's Ira? <laughs> well, I can't be a World Series game. Penn State game. It's not Michigan State, but the Penn State had lost five out of six. This used to be the year-end game, and Penn State has had trouble at Michigan State. Uh, but again, Penn State jumps out to this fast lead, 21 nothing, just like they did against Michigan Purdue. They held on to win, and it's great. I mean, Clifford, Sean Clifford, as a sophomore, is doing a fantastic job. Much more better than uh, he's much better than I thought he would be than Trace McSorley when Trace McSorley left. But the tight end fire moves play great, three touchdowns, 60 yards. And now Michigan State has lost to Ohio State, Wisconsin, and Penn State by a combined 100 to 17. So this sets up Penn State for, I mean, look, they, it's, uh, it, was, it was a win. But it, this, again, the same thing with Ohio State. These are trap games. These are tough games. And they ended up easily winning the game. Ira, let's talk about this next one because I, I, I was very confused looking at this game, Michigan and Notre Dame. There's already talk that Jim Harbaugh might be heading out of town going back to the NFL. I thought that this was going to be a lot closer than it was, and Michigan showed that they're a really good team. Well, the weather was horrendous also in Michigan. So it, all throughout the, the Midwest, it was terrible. And Michigan killed them 45-14. You saw, though, at the end of the Penn State game, how well Michigan played. Michigan came back against Penn State. People said if it was five quarters, they would have won the game. Well, they just continued with their rushing attack and their just suffocating defense and uh, jumping to a 17 nothing lead at halftime and just coasted to a win. I mean, they had uh, Notre Dame only had 180 yards on the game. Their quarterback in book, 8 for 25, 133 yards. And they almost look like a high school team against uh, Michigan. And now Notre Dame has lost 11 straight road games against top 20 teams. So when going into the game, Harbaugh, quote, was on the hot seat. I never thought he was. And now Brian Kelly at Notre Dame might be in a little hot seat because the fact is that they've now this, – this was a bad loss for Notre Dame. And uh, it totally eliminated them. from. They have no chance to make the college football playoff. This is their second loss. And uh, because they're not in a conference, uh, they just have no shot. But bad loss for Notre Dame and a big win for Notre Dame, Michigan. Uh, one game we've got to talk about here, Oregon-Washington State. Oregon's a ranked team. They should be looking better than they did against Washington State, in my opinion. Well, also, because we're down here in Miami, and people are looking at, are we gonna, is Miami going to draft Tua? Is it going to be Justin Herbert? And I watch Oregon play, and I'm not impressed with Justin Herbert. And so he might be announced the number one player taken in the draft, but I'm just not impressed with him. He's just, uh, but, and Oregon was very lucky to win the game. I and mean, Washington scored, took the lead 35-34 with a minute to go. Oregon did move down, but and needed a field goal with time running out to win this game. But again, Oregon, they're, they have one loss. I want to talk about what their chances are, but in the playoff, but uh, no, I mean, yeah, that's right. That's one reason why Oregon, with their one loss, even if they win the Pac-12, might not make it in the college football playoff. Um, you know, Ira, just real quick, you know, you brought up Miami, and of course you're talking about the Miami Dolphins, but let's talk about the Miami Hurricanes for a second. They got a win uh, against Pitt. You would know better than me because you follow Pitt. Is this a decent win f- for the U? I never know what this team really is. And a win's a win, but is Pitt really the competition? And this game was pretty close. It was a mess of a game. I and mean, Pitt was leading. Miami scored at the end. It was. It, I was watching the game. 
uh, it was not a <laughs> not a pretty game at all. But it was a win to win. Pitt is an inconsistent team. Uh, they play Penn, Penn State uh, very hard, and and uh, and, and they've had some. They're four. They're both teams are four and four. So, uh, uh, but uh, no five and three for Pitt. So look, I think it's a big win. I, they they needed to win because they now they're four and four. Florida State beat Syracuse to go four and four, and then Miami's at Florida State this week. Uh, but no, they, they Miami. Look, any win for Miami right now is a big win. They have to they, if they don't they don't want to finish under five hundred. All right, Ira. Real quick, uh, what's the playoff picture looking like uh, for these teams trying to slide in? Four team playoffs. There's tw- my idea is that there's twelve teams that really have a chance to make it. If you're undefeated, it really means something. So even if you're the Baylor's and Minnesotas, if you somehow could finish undefeated, you're going to get in over a one loss team. Uh, the undefeated it shows me, but if you have two losses, you're done. Penn State a couple years ago had two losses. They lost to Pitt, then they lost to, to uh, Michigan. And then they beat Ohio State, and they won the Big Ten over Wisconsin. But they still didn't go to the playoffs because they had the second loss, and Ohio State went over them. So don't think that if you have two losses, you yeah. have a chance. What does that mean? Auburn with two losses, out. Notre Dame with two losses, out. And, my, and I've sort of analyzed this in terms of what teams control their destiny. Of course, LSU, they went out. They beat Bama on November 9th. They win the SEC. They're going to be in the playoffs. Bama, same thing. Ohio State, same thing. Penn State, same thing. Now, the interesting about... LSU, Bama, and Ohio State, and Penn State, the, the four of the top five teams, they play each other, and they're going to play each other in two weeks. If the loser of that game is going to have maybe just one loss in the year because they don't have a chance to play for the championship game, they won't have a chance. So the question is going to be that if Bama gets in, does it, will the Ohio State-Penn State loser, will the Bama-LSU loser have a chance to make the playoffs? Clemson, if they win out, they get in. Baylor, Baylor is 7-0. Baylor, if they beat West Virginia, Texas, TCU, Oklahoma, Texas, win the Big 12 title, they're going to get in. Minnesota, somehow Minnesota beats all the teams, the Penn State, the Iowa's, Northwestern, Wisconsin, they're going to get in. They're going to play for – they would get in. Um, Florida, Georgia play this week. The winner of that game has a chance to get in if they can win out in their, in their, because they each have one loss. And then Oklahoma, all the way down there, I give them the 10th chance, uh, best chance to get in because they're losing to Kansas State – I think if they win the Big 12, I mean, they still, with one loss, might not have a chance. And then Oregon and, U- Oregon and Utah in the Pac-12, will, the winner of that will only have one loss. So that's going to be the issue in terms of Clemson, Ohio State, and Bama, I think are probably going to be those teams. And then it'll be between the one-loss Penn State, the one-loss LSU team, the one-loss Oklahoma, one-loss Oregon, who's going to get that fourth spot? Oklahoma losing open up that fourth spot because Clemson is not losing. And there's a chance. Look, I don't know OSU, Bama. It uh, could be LSU one way or the other. But then there's going to be an issue with those teams. The Ohio State and the, the, te- the loser of Ohio State, Penn State, and the loser of LSU, uh, uh, Bama, is going to make that claim to be in that uh, college football playoff. You are listening to Ira on Sports. we got just about 10 minutes or less left to go here on the True Oldies channel. Then we'll be joined by Mark Leibovich, a journalist and author of Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times. Stick around. It's a great interview. Ira, let's go to the NFL. And this is the, the first game we're going to talk about was kind of confusing to me. I think that the Bills are a legitimate team. I, I think they, they could definitely be a playoff team. The Eagles have looked like crap all season. And they went into Buffalo and just beat the pants off them. I was not expecting this, this one at all. I, I was sort of expecting it because I'm not impressed. I mean, the Eagles haven't looked 
they haven't looked like a great team at all. I mean, they were three and four coming in the game. The Cowboys had destroyed them. But I'm not a, the Bills. The Bills got that behind 17-7, and the Bills don't have the type of team that can come back. They have a very. It seems like when they get behind in a game, Josh Allen doesn't have the wide receivers to throw to. They don't have the electric running back that's going to somehow come back. So count me as not a believer. Even though they were five and one going to the game, count me as not a believer on the Bills. San Diego and the Bears. I think there's a lot of people in Chicago who are not believers in Mitch Trubisky, and we could talk about that, you know, for one second. But this is a game came down to the last second, and the Bears ran Cody Parkey, the Jupiter kid, out of town last year, and Eddie Pinheiro might have to pack his bags too. Missed a, uh, a a last second field goal that would have won this game for them. San Diego came out on top of the Bears, and everyone in Bears country is talking about Trubisky's head. Well, everybody's mad at. At, well, I think they should because they've been because I think they're criticizing Eddie Panero for missing what should be criticized. But the Bears were control of the game sixteen to ten, but then Sabliski fumbles, throws an interception, then they finally get down there to. I mean, otherwise it would have been they would have been total control before the Chargers couldn't have scored. But then to then when they settle for the field goal, they've been criticized the fact that that they were settling for a forty-one yard field goal and didn't try to get the ball closer. I don't know. I mean, the way that they had just fumbled and had interception, I don't know if they could keep putting more plays. Uh, but a terrible loss for the Bears over the, the, the Chargers. The Chargers were in a must-win, sort of like the Steelers are. With only two wins, they needed to have this victory. Um, finally, uh, Montgomery, uh, the Bears, is someone who had him on my fantasy team. He rushed. As first, he was their uh, first-round draft voice. He had 27 carries for 135 yards, and they finally got him going. And the Bears looked, you know, with their defense and everything, the Chargers only had 11 first downs and 36 yards rushing, and the Bears now lost the game. They're three and four. And for a team that, you know, made the playoffs last year was 12 wins and four losses. Again, just another disappointing loss for the, for the team. Ira, if you're in the Bears front office, are you picking up the phone and doing whatever you can to get Teddy Bridgewater or Nick Foles uh, into Chicago? Well, I think Bridgewater seems to be the type of quarterback. I mean, Teddy Bridgewater, we talked about this last week. What a smart move. I mean, the Dolphins offered it. I uh, said, do you want to be our starting quarterback? He said, no, I'll be a backup in New Orleans. He comes there. They're 5-0. and Everybody sees how well he did in that situation. Yeah, I think he's ready to go. For, I think he's going to be on the market to somebody. But I... Look, they've invested a lot in Trublitsky, but we'll have to see. I mean, this, it does not look good. He is not. He's, he's regressing. Each game he's getting worse, not better. You're absolutely right. Um, so, Ira, I, I do believe in San Francisco, and I, I think they're a legitimate team. I, I had no doubt. Some people were kind of on the fence about them. But every now and then I get these real hot takes, and I woke up and was like, you know what? I think Carolina is going to beat San Francisco today. They were paying a bunch of money on the money line. I'm like, you know what? I can see Carolina with the upset today. And boy, was I wrong because San Francisco rolled them. Well, San Francisco goes to 7-0. and um, I mean, you're watching all the games on TV. I was in down in Nationals Park and watching on a bank at this bar, so you could have like nine games, and everything was like rainy and cold, and then and San Francisco was beautiful and sunny. But um, they jumped out to a 27-3 first-half lead. Uh, behind Kevin Coleman, 11 carries for 105 yards, three touchdowns. Carolina couldn't stop them, and San Francisco's defense is good. I mean, Nick Bosa had three sacks interception. Uh, Kyle, they, they forced three interceptions out of Kyle Allen, who hadn't thrown an interception at all uh, the whole year. Uh, but it, it was, again, it was like San Francisco, Garoppolo does enough to win, and the running game between Breda and Coleman was tremendous. I, San Francisco, look, I don't think they're, I think the Saints are better and the Packers are better, but the, San Francisco is putting themselves in a position to maybe host at least uh, maybe the, the championship game in San Francisco that has a good shot. But the, after what happened last year with Garoppolo's injury to come back and, and jump out to a 7-0 record, 
Uh, kudos to say the, the 49ers. I, I agree with you on the on the Saints. I, I do think the Saints are probably the best team in the NFC, especially with Drew Brees back. But I don't know. If I had to take San Fran versus the the uh, Packers or the Vikings, I think I'm going to roll San Fran. They've been doing enough to win. And watching that game yesterday, you don't see a lot of 49ers on the East Coast. That defense is just smothering. That, that front seven is so good. It, it, it was really fun to watch. New England versus Cleveland. This is, you know, the, the Belichick revenge game. He always uh, wants to give it to Cleveland when he can. I thought that the Browns hung around a little bit better than I than I thought, and the New England didn't game plan as amazingly as they had in weeks prior. Well, what again? Another the raining. It was raining, terrible weather, and Nick Chubb, who had they said fumbled since high school almost. He fumbled on two consecutive plays. One, he was kicked by his lineman, and the ball came out, and Dante Hightower picked it up and ran in for a touchdown. And then he had a long, like a sixty-yard run, and John Jones came behind him and knocked the ball out. And the next play, uh, Mayfield uh, threw an interception. They had three turnovers in three plays. I think it was one of like the fifth time it ever happened in the NFL. Uh, but it was it was Belichick's 300th win. He's now behind Hallis at 324 and Don Shula at 354. And this is the third time the New England is eight and zero. They look great. I mean, I, I I felt that they were in control of the game. I felt the Browns played like the Browns do. The penalties, the turnovers, everything that's been plaguing the Browns just came out. That was like, uh, you know, and Beckham had five catches for 50 yards. wasn't impressive. Mayfield made bad decisions, and and everybody was on Freddie Kitchens at the end of the game because he went for it on fourth down, but. He he took a penalty, and that was the big story. The big story was that they were losing already in the game. And uh, I just, I'm impressed how the Patriots play. I mean, people said they didn't look that great. I think when a driving rainstorm, when the weather's terrible and it's windy, I thought they looked pretty good. And, I, and, and to go again, they're 8 and 0 uh, and cruising along. Kind of a weird game here, this one Houston versus Oakland. Um, Houston did enough to win, and, you know, they, they keep finding ways to win, win these games. Uh, it's going to be tough now. J.J. Watt out for the rest of the season, they announced today. Well, Deshaun Watson, it's fun that Deshaun Watson is staying healthy. It's fun to watch him play. And uh, he had three touchdowns, and he had a great pass, and it was six minutes to go to win the game. And uh, that was on watching at the same time when that was going on. And I, I think that losing to Watt, they keep having injuries on their defense. You just wonder, like, what other team the AFC is going to give. Now, Wade Mahomes comes back. But right now, uh, no one seems to be giving the Patriots any pro- uh, trouble. But this opens up the playoff race to a lot of other teams. As I said, we're going to talk a little later. Everybody in the AFC, almost besides the Dolphins and the Jets and the Bengals, seem to have, maybe the Broncos don't have a chance either, but have some sort of chance. But Houston looks good. If Watson can stay healthy and Watson's improving, uh, I, I was very impressed with this win. And the Raiders aren't that bad. The Raiders aren't the Raiders last year. They're three and four. Carr's playing well. He didn't throw an interception. Uh, and you wonder if they had Antonio Brown and he didn't have his problems, that maybe that three and four would have been like a five and two. But uh, I think Gruden's finally getting into it. Look, this, the Oakland team is geared for next year. They're getting better. They have all the draft picks. And they're geared when they move to Las Vegas and they start the year. That's the year. This is just preliminary. The, the year they want is next year. Ira, we only have like two or three minutes left. There was a, re- a weird trend yesterday, though. It was the veteran backup journeyman looking spry and young. One was Matt Moore, who looked pretty darn good against what we think is a good Green Bay defense. And then Matt Schaub, even in a loss to Seattle, he kept them in the game and threw the ball, you know, a hundred times more than I thought he was going to. But Seattle still uh, got that win, which they should have, twenty-seven to twenty. 
Yeah, I mean, look, Seattle's 6-2, and two, and it's surprising the two losses have been at home. Uh, so this is, and Russell Wilson played another good game. They led 24 nothing at the half. And again, a little strange. I mean, Seattle's had this problem. They, got, they were leading 24 nothing. maybe too conservative uh, to, to not to extend it because they ended up only winning 27-20 and let the Falcons come back. But the Falcons are 1-7, and seven, and they have a bye week this week, and a lot of people think that Dan Quinn, their coach, uh, could possibly be fired because there were some of these teams like, like the Falcons. They weren't like the, the Dolphins. I mean, they had they had expectations. They have a, a quarterback they're paying $35 million a year to that they were going to contend for the, you know, the playoffs and go to the, potentially go to the Super Bowl. And this has been a, a bad year for them. It's been yeah beyond bad. And that, that's a great way to look at it. This team had expectations. This wasn't the Redskins. This wasn't the Bengals or the Dolphins. They were expecting to win the division. <laughs> and they are awful. Week in and week out. It's great having Matt Ryan for fantasy purposes, though, because they're always down by three touchdowns. Uh, and he'll be throwing. Um, New Orleans and Arizona, we knew what we were going to get here. That New Orleans defense is still good. No Alvin Kamara, no issues. One thing that does stand out to me, Ira, and I've never really seen this before, in the Indianapolis and Denver Broncos game, Joe Flacco, who usually doesn't say a word, after the game, he had some choice comments about the coaching staff and their lack of taking chances. He just You, you very rarely hear a QB just come out and just say, I hated the play calling. Well, they were, they're two and five, and as common as now, we're two and six. And we, they had a chance to, to ice the game. Indianapolis came down and hit, kicked a 51 yard field goal to win the game. And Flacco was like, look, we called four straight runs. And what I've been saying on my show, the best defense is a, is an offense that gets first down. So you don't have these drives at the end of the game. He's like, we ran four plays that had no chance to get a first down. And it was surprising. But as a veteran, I mean, I, it's not like he's been there. He's not like Brady calling out the coaches, but it is, it shows dissension with the Broncos and, and it shows that, look, he's trying Trying. He wants to. He wanted to do something, and yeah, he did call out the play caller. And I want to go back to one thing about the New Orleans game. I, the more I watch New Orleans, I'm going to say this, and no one has said this ever. I've been hearing Michael Thomas should be the MVP of the league right now. I know that the, you're going to give it to a quarterback. You always give it to quarterbacks, but he is dominating in receptions. He has 73 receptions. Hopkins is at 60. He has uh, uh, more yards. He has 870, 100 yards over the second for yardage. And with a team that now is 7-1, and one, that has been missing Kamara for a bunch of games, Breeze for five games, for, for Michael Thomas, he's not the name, not the Odell Beckham Jr., not the Antonio Brown, not all these other things. He is the dominant wide receiver in the NFL, and he's the reason why this, uh, the Saints are 7-1, and one, and he's getting no consideration for MVP. No, you're absolutely right. But someone who's going to get some votes now is Aaron Rodgers. It'll be the last game we talk about. Listen, you got to beat Kansas City when uh, Patrick Mahomes is not there. You just have to. This game was closer than I thought, though, and I'd be a little bit worried if I'm a Packer fan. I'd be a little worried because everyone keeps saying how great their defense is, and they gave up points. And they gave up 24 points to to Matt Moore. uh, uh, And the running game, too. Yeah, so I think it it it, it was a win. But look, Aaron Rodgers now has, and I think this the best thing that ever happened to him, and you hate to say this, is not to have Adams, not to have his number one wide receiver, because he is throwing to Aaron Jones and throwing it to he Every game, if you're playing for fantasy purposes, you don't know who to play for Green Bay because he, because he is distributing the ball, and he's not forcing the ball to one wide receiver. And, and he's really, this is improved. I mean, when, when Adams comes back, I like to see how he fits in with the, the rest of the receivers. But I like the fact that they finally have a running back that is catching the ball, and that Rodgers, instead of just throwing the ball away, is actually dumping it off to Aaron Jones, and Jones is having a great year. Ira, what are you uh, up to tonight, and what's your plans for this week? Well, I got Steelers and Dolphins, and as we talked about at the beginning of the show, 
I think Dolphin fans do not want. They're, they're in tank mode. They're in full tank mode, but they do want to see their young players play well. It's almost preseason-like. The Steelers, it's a must-win. And the Steelers, though, in games like this, in years past, I'm, I'm nervous. I mean, I'm nervous about this game because I've seen this team year in and year out. I mean, they, this is a team that lost to Tim Tebow in the playoffs. This is a team that was a 20-some point favorite over Jacksonville and lost in the playoffs. So they've lost games they should win in the playoffs let alone in the regular season. And they beat teams that they shouldn't win. I mean, they've been, they play well as underdogs. But this is a game that, that I'm nervous about because if they lose this game and they have Mason Rudolph come back from a concussion, uh, you don't know that he could be prone to interceptions. So very nervous about this game. Every game makes me nervous as a Steelers fan right now. But I, I'm not, I would, I would take, I'd be afraid to take the Steelers and give the points because, uh, because this is because I just seen their history of playing in these type of games. We are out of time. Journalist and author Mark Leibovich joins us right now on I Run Sports. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. All right, it's time to bring in Mark Leibovich here on Iron Sports, a journalist and author. You can check out his new book, Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. Um, Ira, what do you have for Mark? Mark, your book, The Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times, has been out for uh, over a year. Now the uh, paperback, I, you can go to the airport and see the paperback everywhere. And uh, I'd read it a year ago. I actually just reread it this past week. And uh, it's one of the best books on the NFL, if not the best book I've ever read. Um, you really, you're a political oh, writer you. coming from a political sense in terms of covering politics in D.C. And you put that unique touch yeah. into looking at the NFL, which is, of course, the sports you like. So I think it's a great book for people that aren't really like sports, you know, watch every single NFL game. It's a good book for someone who's just is looking to understand the NFL who doesn't really follow it on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. I mean, I, I appreciate that very much. I mean, I, I think, you know, I am a football junkie, but as you mentioned, I mean, politics is my day job, and, and I cover politics for, for the New York Times. So I, I was a little bit um, burned out on this. I've been covering um, Washington for a long time, and the last election was was pretty tiring, and, and I decided to take a, a year or so and to sort of do this safari into what the NFL is like. And, um, you know, for as familiar and as um, kind of ubiquitous as the NFL is to all of us, I and mean, everywhere you look, there's, you know, there's another jersey, there's another uh, hat or something like that. Uh, there, there's plenty we don't know about it, even though, you know, I spend way too much time, um, you know, boning up on stats and watching games and watching highlights and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mostly, you know, I, I wanted to have fun with it, and uh, I got more access than I thought I was going to get. So uh, I think it all worked out really, uh, really well, and I'm glad I did it. Well, you you interviewed many of the NFL owners, and you write in the book, uh, this is your quote, it goes, there's much about the membership uh, that is inadvertent, starting with who gets to join this freakish assembly. They are quite a bunch, old money and new, recovering drug addicts and born-again Christians and Orthodox Jews sweethearts, criminals, and a fair number of dirty old men. So you, there's 100 U.S. senators, and there's 32 team owners. Uh, maybe some compare and contrast mm-hmm. between a U.S. senator and, and perhaps an NFL team owner? Oh, great question. Well, uh, let me tell you some compares, definitely. I mean, they're both really old. Many of them, they're, they're almost entirely men, in, certainly in the case of NFL owners. I mean, a couple of the uh, widows of longtime owners, like in um, you know Chicago and, and I guess um, you know New Orleans and a bunch of few other cities, you, you see that Mrs. Ford in, in Detroit. But no, I mean it, it's a lot of uh, aging white guys, basically. I mean it, it's uh, it's representative of of people who are largely you know large top percentile of wealth. 
Um, every NFL owner is pretty much a billionaire. Um, and quite a few senators are, I mean, I think there are very few senators who are not millionaires. I think all of them actually must be at least millionaires at, some, at this point. So, um, I mean, covering them, there was, there was some similarity between you sort of wait around as a reporter, waiting for them to come out from their endless meetings and their little sanctuaries. Um, but essentially, yeah, it's sort of the same um, profile and power and, and wealth and, and influence. And um, my job as a reporter has sort of been out on the sidelines sort of trying to press my nose up against the glass and trying to get as much as I, I could. And, and luckily for me, I mean, I, I saw quite a bit in my, my brief time at the league. So, Mark, there, Roger Goodell has a difficult task of sort of managing these 32 owners in terms of and, and maybe give us some insights into him because you actually had a chance to meet with him and interview him. And, and also you tried to meet with him a number of times and you got, he got one off yeah. comments all the time with him, but talk a little about maybe some insights about Roger Goodell that we don't know just following the league on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, first of all, I, I got more time with him than I thought. I mean, it did take some doing, as you mentioned, but um, eventually you sort of ask enough and you hang around enough and, and he agreed to, Meet with me a couple times, once before the NFC Championship game a few years ago in um, in Carolina and, and once in his office in New York. I mean, essentially the most important part of Roger Goodell's job, if you're Roger Goodell, is making sure the 32 owner bosses um, that he works with are happy with your job. And, and if they're satisfied and you keep them happy and you know what their concerns are and you call them to make them know that they're special. Uh, they're going to feel pretty good about the job you're doing, especially if you keep them very, very rich. And the NFL is a cash cow. Uh, they're going to keep you in charge. And, and Roger Goodell has, has certainly angered quite a few of the people who are ostensibly his bosses uh, due to various you know, player discipline things. But um, he's been rewarded handsomely, and I think he'll he'll have that job for as long as he wants just because of the owner's um, that that are his bosses. He spends a lot of time keeping happy, and they don't take they don't turn over very often. So I don't know. I mean, I think he he's a pretty he's a politician basically, um, and he's not a terribly you know, uh, interesting guy to interview. I would say, and I think he would be booed at the draft for as long as he keeps coming out to do the draft, and would be booed in any number of NFL markets, if not all of them. But I think that that's you know secondary or even tertiary to how he views his job. Um, in terms of making the league money and keeping his bosses happy. So you spent a good part of the book talking about the move to Los Angeles, the return to Los Angeles for the NFL. And I was just at the games two weeks ago. I went to the Charger game. I went to the 49er Ram game when most of the stadium at at the Coliseum was filled with Rams fans, 49er fans. And then I went to the Charger game the same day. Steelers fan went in a 30,000-seat stadium, 22, 23, 4,000 of the fans were (laughs) Steelers fans. And next year, the, rich, yeah. the, the most expensive stadium ever constructed is going to open, uh, probably right. to a complete disaster, especially on the Chargers side. Talk about the decision yeah. that, that led the NFL to put this, how the teams came back, and, and what do you think the NFL is going to do when maybe 10,000 fans show up for a game uh, at, the, at the new stadium? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the L.A. Um, sort of quandary has been like a hot issue around the league for a couple decades um, because the fact is, I mean, L.A. Has, was without a team for for about 25 years, and, and most people in L.A. were pretty okay with that. I mean, the fact is, L.A., like Washington, D.C., where I live, and, you know, many parts of Florida um, and other parts of the country is filled with transplants. So 
Well, it is interesting. I mean, I think the Rams, I think there was some belief that of the three teams that were looking to move to L.A., the Rams made the most sense because the Raiders, you know, at least at the time, uh, were associated very much with Oakland um, and the other team that was thinking of moving the Chargers. Uh, you know, it, it was San Diego is a very supportive market for them. Um, they kind of belong in San Diego. They have very passionate fans, and it's not that far from L.A., um, so the L.A. Rams makes a certain amount of sense. The, the L.A. Chargers just from the beginning didn't, and the Rams don't want them there. seems like certainly the fans of San Diego didn't want them to leave, and the fans of Los Angeles, such as they are, don't seem to want them there at all, and we're seeing this reflected in uh, – what's the name of that stadium? It's got some weird name. It's like uh, – what's the name of that – where the Chargers are playing now? Help me out here. Um, hello? Yeah, Carson. Uh, yeah, so whatever it's yeah, so it, it's not um, it, it's not a natural fit. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that sometime if sometime in the next ten years or so, the Chargers decide to um, lo and behold decide you know we belonged in San Diego the whole time and turn the moving vans around and go back to San Diego with their tails between their legs. But that's a lot easier said than done. And um, who knows? Maybe the stadium itself in Los Angeles will will sell plenty of tickets on their on its own because supposedly you know there's a lot of hype around it. But no, right now it's a very awkward situation and it's quite a weird spectacle. Um, although having said that, I'd like to watch a game in that stadium. It looks kind of interesting. Right, and so another another team which which is I mean you, there's two teams close to your heart. You said you went to the University of Michigan, so you had a good week, but with the win over Notre Dame and the Patriots now are eight and zero. But you spent time talking to Bob Kraft, who, oh, you, you said he was, he used to be Bob Kraft, and now he's Robert Kraft, and then just RKK. He's now Robert. And yeah. then uh, time, talking to Tom Brady. So you've got an insight into the Patriots that a lot of people don't have. Um, talk a little about this late gate, and, and what was the need for the NFL? I mean, I've always been on the Patriots' side on that. I thought it was, should have been a fine. I don't understand why the, there had to be suspensions. They made such a big deal about it. It's yeah. over the court. But talk a little about what you found out about what happened to this late gate and why the NFL kept pressing that issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that like a lot of things inside the NFL, it's, it's politics. And like I said before, I mean, there's nothing Roger Goodell can do that's more important than, than making the owners that pay his salary happy. And there's nothing the NFL owners love more than to seeing Robert Kraft and the New England Patriots getting a pound of flesh taken out of them as they certainly didn't deflate gate. I, I, you know, look, I, I should say by way of full disclosure, I, I grew up in New England. So I am, uh, yes, I'm unfortunately, I have the birthright of being one of those horrible Pats fans, uh, but I try to be one of the good ones. And um, I know that, you know, we've, we've, we've done well on the field, but, but I know everyone hates us. So I, I acknowledge that. I, I don't think, I thought that deflate gate was ridiculous. I think there's a lot more reasons people, for people to hate the Patriots for and Patriot fans for. But Deflategate, I mean, it was just sort of a minor equipment violation at best. There was nothing in the Wells report, which um, I read three times. Um, you know, it's probably like over 600 pages. Or hours of my life I'll never get back. That, that I saw it being particularly damning. Um, I certainly don't think Tom Brady deserved to have his reputation um, tarnished the way he did and to be suspended for six games and, and a loss of draft picks, you know, theoretically hurt the team. Although, you know, they keep going back to the Super Bowl. But look, I, I think that it was. I mean, the fact of the matter is, that the NFL sees itself as a reality show, and there was no bigger story in the NFL 
that winter and for almost for a year and a half than that. And it was goofy and it was silly and there was a bad guy and people were sort of set against each other. And it was a lot more pleasant for people who followed the NFL to focus on than domestic violence or concussions or things like that. So right. look, I, I think it was a much, much ado about nothing. I think they were treated unfairly and I know a lot of people aren't going to feel sorry for them or us. So, um, you know, I guess we'll just sort of move on. Yeah, and and also now in the news, I guess this past week, um, Adam Schefter, who you uh, talk about in the book about with the, the the nuggets of of news that he gives out all the time, came out the bombshell that yeah. uh, Tom Brady is selling his house and he only has a year left on his contract, or this is his final year. Which that news has been out there for a while, and suddenly it's now yeah. well, Tom Brady is going to either go to another team, or he's going to retire, or he's going to stay with the Patriots, which everyone has been going to another team. No one's talked about, but there's always that issue that he might retire. Yeah. So, where do you? Why is this this past week become such a huge story? And secondly, what do you think? What's your what's your opinion in terms of what Tom Brady is going to do in the next year? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I think what's changed in the last week is that Adam Schefter weighed in and, and he has such a big, um, you know, he has such a big megaphone around the league. Uh, people tend to pay attention to him. He's also extremely close to, to Belichick and to a lesser degree Kraft. So, you know, he might be picking something up there. Although I read his report and I didn't really see anything based on any kind of recent sourcing. I mean, my, my sense with Tom and is that he, um, does want to keep his options open. He knows he's in a good situation, but he's also a Californian and New Yorker. I mean, he, he has a wife who operates on a global stage like he does. Um, I don't think he has any particular fondness for the New England area, except that, you know, he's obviously won a lot there and the organization, you know, it's been a great fit for them. But I think, look, I mean, the possibilities of him moving to another team, and I don't, I don't think he'll retire, by the way. I think he'll play as long as he's healthy because he's healthy. Um, but I think that there's not a lot of options for him. I mean, I guess Philip Rivers could retire in L.A. and he could go to L.A. Um, I mean, you hear a place maybe uh, – I mean, he's not going to go to the Jets and the Giants have a quarterback now. Um, you know, the Bears, you've heard thrown out. Um, hey, I might as well throw this out too. And Miami, I mean, he, he does – I think he would look at certain cities, certain markets that have a, a certain global cachet that – you know, most NFL cities like, you know, Green Bay or, or Tennessee or, or places like that wouldn't. But having said that, I think it makes all kinds of sense for him to stay where he is. And, um, but I also don't think that he's, he is, uh, he's ready to sort of foreclose on any possibilities. Oh, wow. That's a, no, that's an interesting take on it. We're talking to Mark Levowitz, who's an author of The Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Uh, another issue that was that you cover in the book in detail was uh, the whole with the political side of Goodell and the right. owners and the idea of kneeling with the, the Colin Kaepernick situation and how they were dealing with it. Um, I guess that's been covered a lot, but I just want to bring up a little about the NFL somehow got criticized. When this whole situation was going on, they were getting criticized by, by the NBA, by a lot of other people saying, well, the NBA does it right. Everybody stands. They don't have any issues. The NFL, you have all the issues. You have all the problems. But then the NFL, the NBA runs into problem with China in terms of their right. political issues uh, and having issues, and 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 it's almost like it, people in the NFL were saying, well, you know, look, you're throwing you're throwing your stones at us all the time, but it's not right. really fair. How is the NFL as they try to get that 25 billion and go into these markets? How are they going to think attempt the international growth, uh, which they're doing in England and Mexico, that, to not run into the yeah. same problems that the NBA is running into? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I guess in some ways the NBA, and, and I agree, they, they certainly seem to botch this in ways that the NBA doesn't typically do. Um, but the NBA also has a luxury in that they're huge in China, and the NFL would love to be huge in places like China. I mean, as, as you alluded to, um, the growth potential for the NFL overseas is quite limited. I mean, like you said, Great Britain and, and Mexico are the two places that they seem to have any kind of foothold whatsoever. And even there, at least certainly in England, it's, it's a bit of a curiosity. I mean, I think the appeal for the NFL is, is real over there. But, um, you know, when you start going further um, east, you know, to, to Germany and France, it's, it gets a little bit dicey. So, look, the, the NFL is an American sport. I mean, part of the appeal of it is it, it's a perfect um, sort of fit for the American psyche. And it's largely – it's typically been a pretty conservative sport. I mean, the fans have been – mostly pretty conservative, um, you know, largely white, and and it's a much kind of more suburban and almost rural group of of fans um, and players, actually, than you would find in the NBA um, in the markets that they appeal to. So I think that there was a lot more um, sort of concern around the Colin Kaepernick issue, especially when, when Donald Trump weighed in, that they were going to lose the sort of predominantly conservative strain of the American culture that, that they had a real stranglehold on. I mean, it turns out it didn't have any really long-term lasting effects because football is just a beloved spectacle in America. But I do think that the politics are changing. I think that, that there are a lot of people, especially in suburbs and cities on the coasts, that are kind of sick of, of sort of football and, and just sort of having to, to think about head injuries and, and, you know, a lot of the other sort of uncomfortable dynamics um, inherent to the game that – you don't see in the NBA, but look, I think as the NBA China thing proved, um, there's nothing uncomplicated about any of these things, especially when you're trying to um, appeal to diverse or even global markets. Right. And then one of the issues that you, again, you cover in the book, you have so many different issues. It's a, it's a great, great, phenomenal read. But the point yeah. about uh, how when Roger Goodell came in, he wanted to be the enforcer, protecting the shield. And suddenly now when right. we hear – I mean, it used to be under Tackle and Roselle, if you're not in jail, you're playing football. That's, there's no requirement. We're not really right. going to look into anything, what you're doing in the rest of your life. And now if something right. happens off the field, we wonder, is it a two-game suspension, a four-game suspension, a six or an eight? Right. And it becomes this whole issue about the suspensions. Talk about – and then it, it's right. somehow with the Ray Rice situation caused Goodell all these problems. So talk about how the NFL is – dealt with these problems to go in the past, but actually how they're going to deal with it in the future. And is it, are we, are we in the normal now where something happened and we're just going to have to estimate what something is going to be in terms of suspensions? Yeah. I mean, I think it varies. I mean, Tagliabue had this expression back when he was commissioner, which was all that ends well ends, which is he liked to sort of sweep scandals under the rug. He, he didn't like to talk about uncomfortable things, whether it was concussions or so forth. And I think, Goodell left to his devices wouldn't want to either. But look, I mean, Goodell has picked a lot of fights. I mean, a lot of these player discipline things, you know, whether it's Brady or Ray Rice or Adrian Peterson or, you know, I guess Zeke Elliott last year. I mean, go down the list. Um, th these are things that are going to alienate certain markets of the country in pretty significant ways. Um, but they also, I guess, on the other side of that, is it creates interest. I mean, sometimes. Remember Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, said this to me. He said, you know, sometimes even when it seems like negative attention, at least people are talking about you. And he, he was talking about the flake kid. He said, you know, I thought after about a year of this, people would be sick of it and it would reflect poorly on the brand. But 
look at our ratings. It just shot everything up. And it's true. I mean, if you sort of think of the NFL in terms of a reality show, um, not unlike in some ways how you think of the Trump White House in terms of a reality show, it starts to make more sense. But now, look, I mean, Roger Goodell is, is never going to be beloved by, by the fans or the players, I don't think. I think that's going to be even more so as they head into a collective bargaining um, negotiation over the next year or so. But I, again, it's sort of been baked into the cake, in which we now sort of expect that to be part of the off-field drama, uh, keeps things interesting in the off-season, and you know, it's part of the reason why so many people have an opinion on the NFL. Well, we're thank you. We're talk, we've talked to, with Mark Levowitz, uh, the author of the Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times. You also were a writer of the author of the This Town, which is about Washington D.C. So I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, you'll see, find this book. I mean, I still I travel a lot in airports, and it's in almost every bookstore anywhere you go. So it's great. And, and again, it's, it's a perfect book for somebody that is not a day-to-day follower. It's great for the day-to-day follower of the NFL, but also for someone who's just sort of casually follows the league and says, I want to read about the NFL. And, and the way you write and the stories you tell, it's just a great read. And I, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports well, and. To, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for, you know, thanks for having me on and uh, hope the Dolphins win tonight.